culture standing by itself. I've not pursued that. It's always culture's relationship to change that got my attention. So these two factors we've learned over the years are the most important parts of culture that interface with change. And, and again, that's the mindsets people are having about the change and the priorities they're setting within that mindset toward or against the change. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hey, Jack here. Today we will be discussing how organizational culture and leadership impact successful organizational change. Daryl will share his insights on effective strategies and tactics for driving change, as well as ways to measure organizational culture and why it is important. I'm honored today to introduce you to our guest, Daryl Connor. Daryl is the founder of Connor Partners, a leading consulting firm specializing in the most difficult strategic change. Daryl has been at the forefront of advancing strategy execution for decades, and he's the author of two acclaimed books, Managing at the Speed of Change and Leading at the Edge of Chaos. His extensive experience in advising and executing successful change initiatives for clients across various industries makes him a highly respected authority on the subject. So without further ado, from Atlanta, Georgia, Daryl, welcome to the show. Hi, Jack. Been looking forward to it. You bet. And thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Daryl, before we get started, can you please further introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, Daryl Connor. I began my, well, originally I was in clinical psychology and got intrigued with, of, of course, that work was around individual and family counseling and, and about change. This is in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I got intrigued with how does change unfold at an organizational level rather than at a family level or individual level. And I was curious about what the parallels were and what was different. And so I started poking around uh, organizational environments and found out that, in fact, not much had been documented around that whole notion of how do we successfully change. The focus was much more on just making sure that the right decision was made rather than thinking about execution architecture. So I began what I naively thought was probably going to be a few months of research and I'm still at it, um, trying to trying to understand um, just just how does this phenomenon unfold? Um, so, what's what's come about from this research? And it for the first few years it was uh, just in the U.S., but then it went global, and and we found that the patterns are very very similar, actually from country to country. You have to respect the local cultural differences of these patterns. But there are patterns to what leaders are doing when they successfully introduce change and when they fall short. So my first few years was to was to try to understand and document those patterns. And then then the challenge was, can you share those success patterns with executives and and can they replicate those uh, intentionally? And we found that, yes, you can. And and so that has been the, that's been my path ever since. 
That's fantastic. And how exciting. I know you have quite the uh, impressive career and bio, and I'm going to leave it to our listeners to check that out uh, on, on your podcast page, but it's pretty impressive. But Daryl, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you and, and honored uh, to have you share your insight and your experience and some of your findings. Um, such a fascinating topic, to be sure. With your experience in advising and executing successful change initiatives, uh, I, I know that you have a lot of valuable insight to offer to our listeners today. Listeners, all of us here at the ERP OCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. Please stay with us till the end. Daryl and I will both offer up our golden nuggets on advice based on today's conversation. Our conversations here are built around the listen and learn approach, but it's when you apply what you've learned that you begin to move the needle forward. So let's dive in. Daryl, one more question here to further the introduction. Can you please tell our listeners a little bit more about Connor Partners specifically and what your role is there? Uh, well, my role is chairman and the work there is really focused in on large complex change initiatives. Connor Partners was was uh, started in 1974. Never been a resource to help organizations determine what to change. The value that I try to bring in is once a change a strategy has been formulated, what are the patterns that, uh, if followed, would, would allow you to fully realize uh, the intentions of those changes? And so all of the work at Connor Partners is around navigating the human landscape that surrounds these major changes. And the nature of the changes, Jack, are all over the map. I mean, mergers, yeah. acquisitions, new technology, uh, reorganizations. As long as the change is transformational in nature rather than incremental, then then the patterns that we have been investigating all these years, uh, that, that's when they apply. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, let's dig into some of these uh, these patterns. But before we get started, you know, some basic blocking and tackling here. Can you define what we mean by organizational culture exactly? How would you define that? Well, as you know, and I'm sure the listeners, it, it can get pretty convoluted, right? So yeah. I'm at the expense of oversimplifying it. I try to come at it from the not a simple, but but hopefully an elegant perspective and, and really go yeah. to the heart of it. And so for me, organizational culture has to do with those patterns of mindsets and behaviors that have been established for, you can have rules tomorrow, but you don't have culture. They have to be established for a while and they have to be pervasive. Whatever your CEO does, doesn't make something cultural. And so it's got to be pervasive throughout the organization. So I'm looking at mindsets and behaviors. And what I mean by mindset is the glasses that we wear to make sense out of the world around us. Um, and so when we look through that lens, if you will, it tells us what's relevant, what's not, what's useful, what's not, what's noise, what do we pay attention to, um, how do we know if we're winning or losing. All of those benchmarks come from our frame of reference. Once you understand a person's frame of reference, then within that frame of reference, it'll be important culturally to understand the priorities that are set. Mm -hmm. So a culture can be thought of as the patterns of views that people have toward whatever is going on. That's their frame of reference, their collective frame of reference that they have been taught that that's the way we see things around here. And, and within that frame of reference, this is more important than that. And so mm -hmm. if we were a blue culture, 
there would be certain things that wouldn't be, we wouldn't pay any attention to and other things that would be critically important. If we were a red culture or a purple culture, because we would see things and interpret things differently, we would have different priorities. So, Jack, actually, culture standing by itself, I've not pursued that. It's always culture's relationship to change that it got yes. my attention. Mm-hmm. And so these two factors we've learned over the years are the most important parts of culture that that interface with change. And, and again, that's the mindsets people are having about the change and the priorities they're setting within that mindset toward or against the change. Wow, that's great insight, Daryl. And I think that's why I really appreciate your work and you know the idea of really understanding organizational con- uh, culture rather in the context of organizational change. And it's just a fascinating topic. You know, you talk about that idea of organizational culture and transformation and change, actually. And you actually had an article, and I believe it was titled Organizational Culture and Its Impact on Transformational Change. And we will share that link to that article in our show notes, of course. Um, But you mentioned that organizational culture can either facilitate or hinder change efforts. How can organizations identify and address cultural barriers to change and does it have something to do with this idea that you just spoke of with frame of reference? Uh, it does. So to answer your question, let me, let me offer a bit of context. We found that culture is only one of, of several inhibitors to any change. There has to be clarity of the intent of the change, and that has to be cascaded throughout this organization. If you don't have that clear intent, then, then that's a risk. Uh, you've got to have synergistic teams operating or you're at risk. So there's several risk factors and culture is one of those, meaning that if you if you start with the assumption, which I do, that whatever the initiative that the leaders have determined they want to execute, I start with the assumption that that's the right thing to do. I'm not, I, uh, I'm not yeah. a resource to help them evaluate if they're making the right move or not. I'm looking at what can get in your way. And so there's several of these inhibitors that can minimize, if not completely stop, movement in the direction that you want. And that's where culture comes important. Now, I should offer this caveat for your listeners. All of my work, all of this research is around major change, major change relationship to culture. Uh, There are some of the things that, that I'll share as we talk Jack, either might be less true or maybe not true at all if you were looking at incremental change. What I mean by major dramatic change is some type of initiative. It's not, it doesn't matter what the content is, but the initiative has to meet three criteria to be a major change. First, it has to be transformational in nature rather than incremental. Secondly, uh, success is going to be ma- measured on realization metrics, not installation metrics. Uh, yeah. a, a classic installation metric is uh, how many people did we train? And if we, if we if we intended to train 100 people and we did, we'll declare success. Realization metric is of those people that were trained, how many went out and not only applied what they were trained in, but accomplished what the training was for. That's a realization metric. So it's a much more sophisticated demanding change if you're going to hold yourself accountable to realization outcomes. And the third variable is, is this initiative a a good idea and we hope it works? Or is it an absolute imperative uh, on my watch, this thing has to happen? So when I share any perspective today, Jack, about culture. It's, it's culture's relationship 
two major transformational change, nothing short of full realization is acceptable. And it's an absolute imperative. With, with that kind of urgency, then you've got, you've got a different relationship with culture. Does, does that raise any questions for you, Jack? Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great explanation. I appreciate it. And, you know, when you look into the world of mergers and acquisitions and carve outs, which you and I are both in and experienced in, I would certainly, based on your definition of major change, you know, transformation, number one, number two, realization versus installation metrics. And is the initiative a good idea or is it imperative? I think that in most cases, in our work anyways, we would qualify for major change. Now, I would agree with you in general. And yet, with a lot of the mergers and acquisitions that, that I've seen, yes, it's generally transformational. That's true. It almost always is considered an imperative. But Jack, a, a lot of the organizations that I've had access to, they tend to lean toward installation metrics rather than realization metrics. Tell um, me more. And it, yeah. Uh, be, you know, it's easier. <laughs> it's easier to say, well, did we reorganize or did we lean out the workforce? Those are installation metrics. Yeah. It's a much harder task to create a dashboard around what were those things supposed to accomplish and did they? Yes. Uh, so anyway, yeah. that's just a bit of a sideline that yeah. I, I've seen in, in mergers and acquisitions. Sometimes that one is is a little short. Yeah, I, I got you. Yes, ag- agreed. Uh, and I think that you're probably right. That probably is a topic for another half hour conversation uh, in its own. I, I think there's a lot there. Well, Daryl, can you, if you don't mind, and, and maybe even keeping it confidential or anonymous, uh, can you share any sort of an example of an organization that was successfully transformed uh, its culture to drive change based on your major change criteria? Well, it'll be important to be kind of generic in the discussion, so to to predict confidentiality. But over the last few years, I've been particularly impressed with, uh, for example, we worked with a pharma. um, Well, I put it in the pharma category. It's more maybe more of a biotech. What, What was critical for them culturally let me back up. So they had a set of initiatives, Jack, that they didn't start off with needing to change their culture. Mm. Uh, when we did an analysis of what's going to get in your way, we were able to tell them your current culture is inconsistent with the culture you need to make this thing work. Mm. So that's how they got into culture. They didn't just wake up one day deciding to change the culture. And when we dug into what was it about the culture that had to shift, there was several factors, but what I remember that jumped out at me was risk-taking. In in that sector, you know, there's so much caution, and understandably so, they've got patients' lives at stake. There's so much caution, however, that innovation was actually suffering uh, because there wasn't enough risk-taking. And shifting shifting a, a culture that you know, would go to the nth degree to make sure there was never any risk for patients. The challenge of how do we maintain that integrity and and open up to being more innovative? Um, and yeah. I, I just I have a lot of respect for the leaders that saw the nuance of that and saw the the answer isn't binary. It's not this way or that way. It's how do you blend the, the two ends of that continuum? Yeah. That one always kind of sticks out. I mean, there was a a big box, one of the big box places that, that we all shop to. And for them, it was all about technology. They needed to update is not even really a, an accurate term. It was a dramatic leap forward technically, uh, technology-wise, in terms of 
of the customer interface and the customer relation. And yet that was a huge leap forward. It wasn't just bringing in technology. They had uh, completely shift the mindset mm-hmm. about how you relate to customers. And um, this, one of these big boxes is not too far from our house. And, and my wife and I shopped there and I, I couldn't help myself about 18 months into this project. I was in there shopping and there's now store signage up on the walls uh. around this new thing. And so, of course, the person waiting on me doesn't know that I, <laughs> that I have lunch with, with his CEO, right? So, but I just, you know, I'm just a customer. So I said, hey, what is that about? And what was amazing and that what I was able to go back and tell the, tell the CEO was, you know, I was there 18 months ago when they first started this thing. And part of it was how do we embed this down into the culture so that the person on the floor answering a question would be able to to leverage this technology. Well, there I was asking a dumb customer question and I got an impeccable answer. I mean, this guy oh, just wow. nailed it. Wow. And he's probably, Jack, he's, he's 12, 15 layers below the CEO, yeah. right? That's, <laughs> that's when you know that we've got not just a technical answer here. We've got mindsets that yeah. have shifted. And uh, yeah, yeah, that one, that one will probably always stick out for me. What a great example. Great story. And, you know, when you get to that level, Daryl, I mean, talk about effective change, right? When you start changing the mindset and the hearts of the people, that's pretty powerful. Uh, that's a great story. Daryl, if you don't mind, I, I do want to ask you uh, two or three questions about the role of leadership in change execution. Uh, in your previous response, you happened to mention uh, leadership. What insight can you share in terms of how does leadership style impact change initiatives? I, I know it's a pretty general question, pretty high level, but what's your initial response based on your years of experience and research? What does the leadership style have to say about successful change initiatives? You know, this... You're right. I mean, if we go after style, it has such a broad reach to it. But but let me just speak to a couple of pieces. One, there's a, a very clear differentiation between those leaders that tend to succeed versus those that don't. And one of the characteristics that separates them, and, and by the way, the ones that succeed, are that's a much smaller population. Yeah. Um, cultural change, in my view, Jack, has gotten much too popular <laughs> in the sense that everybody thinks they should be doing it. And um, it, it's really difficult. And uh, I, I think a lot of leaders get into it, you know, naively. And so there, there's a larger population that don't get the results that they're really after. The ones that do well, one of the characteristics is they don't relate to culture as a peripheral thing that HR is doing. It's not something that is delegated. The leaders that really come out on top with these major initiatives, they view culture as central, as part of the, the basic DNA of success. And so they they relate to it that way. Whereas the, the leaders that get less than what they're after, they typically delegate it, they assign it, you know, let me know how it's going. Um, you know, if I need to show up somewhere and give a speech, sure. But they don't own it at the level that they would, you know, some other elements of running the business. Clearly, though, there's a pattern with, with those that succeed. They view the, the culture as absolutely essential. If we don't get the cultural infrastructure right, it doesn't matter how correct this decision is. And so that's, that's one. 
I'll just pick one other one. There's fewer of these, Jack, than there used to be, but there still is a lot of autocratic, shut up and do what I tell you to, this is the change. It still exists. Um, It's not as popular to be as visible, but it still exists. That does not come out to be a characteristic of the winning pattern. The, The winning pattern, however, Jack, the winning pattern is not this egalitarian Let's all be in it together. Let, you know, uh, we won't make any moves until everybody's comfortable. We found both ends of that continuum dysfunctional in the research. So shut up and do what I tell you to. Does it work with major change? Nor does it work to say, well, we're not going to do anything until everybody's comfortable. What we found in the winning pattern are leaders that essentially say, okay, we, we got some tough decisions here. How we're going to handle that is I may have some ideas. I maybe even have some biases, but this is important stuff. So we want input. We want a lot of input. Quite frankly, the more diverse, the better. The more grist we have for the mill, the better. So don't be don't be bringing ideas that you think are going to land well with me. We really need to mix it up. We're going to have some serious debate before this change decision is made. Once it's made, however, there's absolutely no wiggle room there's no opting out. You're either part of this or you're not. And so there's there's this combination in the winning pattern of a lot of inclusion. And I don't mean politically correct focus groups to make everybody feel good. I'm talking about really getting getting contrary ideas on the table and, and mixing it up and then saying, thank you very much. We've now made a decision and we need full support in that. That combination of those two that's the winning pattern on either end of the extreme. We found that they were falling into the losing pattern rather than the winning pattern. Well, Daryl, this is great stuff. <laughs> I, I love this. And you know how you'd mentioned that, you know, your focus has been not necessarily on culture per se, but on the relationship between culture and successful change in large scale change. And for me, and I think we're in the same, you know, in our same boat, there's a third piece of that. And it's the leader versus culture versus successful change, you know, triad and and how they impact each other. You know, for me, I'm fascinated by the study of leadership and looking for rhyme and reason and and to success or not success. And, you know, I I think your insight there where you have two ends of the the spectrum, two extreme ends of the spectrum, and it's really a bit of almost, I I would say, a combination of the two to a certain degree and and knowing when to apply what tools and what styles at what time. And and that can be a bit of a craft and and an art, I think. I agree. But, you know, it seems to me, Daryl, that culture has become, or can be anyways, a bit of a buzzword. And I like how you'd mentioned that leaders can get into, quote unquote, culture almost naively. But I, I think that, and this is no easy task by any stretch, but I agree that culture needs to be in the core fabric and like you said the dna of the corporation and not just an hr you know project and that's easier said than done well the only leaders that i've ever seen that have that perspective every one of them has scar tissue and that scar tissue was earned by doing just the opposite you know treating it as peripheral or you know i don't have time for that or you know yeah i'll show up when i need to So this kind of deep appreciation and commitment to culture as a lever for organizational success, that's not just philosophical with these people. I mean, they have watched impeccable decisions get get completely off track because they didn't deal with the culture. And so, you know, it comes from a test of fire rather than some kind of just intellectual insight. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, Daryl, um, let's go ahead and peel this onion back just one more layer here. And in your paper, the same one I referred to earlier titled Organizational Culture and Its Impact on Transformational Change, you actually explore the role of leadership in shaping organizational culture. So how can leaders create a culture that supports successful change initiatives then, or maybe ask another way, what are some strategies then that leaders can use to align culture with change initiatives? So maybe just drill down a little bit further to less maybe philosophy and, and maybe some more strategic advice. Yeah. Um, first, get really clear about what the intent is of this initiative. If you're bringing in technology or merger acquisition, whatever it is, what is the intent? When I ask most leaders what the intent is, um, I get reams and reams of paper about work streams. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not asking about task. I'm asking that you look, you're about to invest a lot of money. You you must have gone to your board and, and you didn't promise them work streams. You promised them something real. What is it you're trying to accomplish? Start there. Because then, then you can ask the question throughout the organization, what are the, the cultural norms that would have to be in place? The mindsets and the behavior patterns that would have to be in place to drive that change. Mm-hmm. Because remember, we... Jack, we already have now established earlier that we've got the answer to the three questions. It's transformational. We're going for realization. And this is an imperative. So, mm-hmm. so this is a big leap. This is something big, right? So what do you have to have in the culture to drive something like that? Okay. Now, now you, what you've, you've documented, if you will, what culture you need. Now we've got to cascade that down into the organization. I don't mean tell people what the new culture is. You've actually got to enroll them, go beyond the difference between informing people about a new culture and embedding it is that you you not only deal with how attractive it is and why this looks good and what's the, the positive change. You also get into their fears and concerns. Yep. One of the things that the losing leaders have trouble grasping is that the pathway to deep commitment is actually through doubt. You don't circumvent doubt, you surface doubt so you can deal with it. And so that next stage is to really enroll people. You, yes, you get them excited, but you also you also help them see the sober side of something like this. Now, now we've got people that understand collectively where we're trying to go, but we got to match that up against where we are. Yeah. And I've, I'm not fond of large institutional studies around this. To me, Jack, culture lives in your backyard. So yeah. you go to the subcultures, you go to where people, you know, these five people or these 25 or these 50, where they have a, a common set of beliefs and of mindsets and behaviors that distinguish them. So, so it's different in customer support than it is in IT or whatever. You yeah. go there and you say, here's the culture we want. Help us determine what culture we got in your subculture, not some big academic thing, in your subculture. And then now we're going we're gonna to focus in on how do we close those gaps. Yeah. So you, you actually work. The movement needs to be done at the practical local level with these subcultures. Now, all of that can be taking place and it goes all it goes completely out the window if you don't have one other element. You've got to have leaders at the top that are role modeling this new culture. Uh, all the mechanics that I just mentioned are for naught. If I'm down here, I got all excited about the new culture, we've identified our gaps, we're all ready to close the gaps and I look up and I see I see leaders 
displaying mindsets and behaviors that are the antithesis of what they want us to do, then then Jack, game over. Yeah. Daryl, that's uh, quite a powerful insight there. And the way that you talked about, you talk about subcultures and quote unquote, in your backyard, uh, I think it's a pretty relevant idea to say the least, right? Because within an organization, sometimes your quote unquote front office with, like you said, your HR, that subculture may be drastically different than the yeah. hardworking women and folks on the floor that are, you know, maybe part of the union, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and being able to align those two different subcultures into one kind of cohesive organizational culture, you know that that takes some uh, it takes some skill for sure. Well, you've got to you've got to localize. So what the leaders at the top need to do is they they need to author a clearly and concise and compelling story about this new culture because we're all gonna we're all gonna collect around that. But down in my subculture. We're not going to create a different subculture, but we have a different interpretation of those same words yeah, right. than another one. So you have to localize it so that it has real traction and meaning for people, you know, where they live. Absolutely. And so speaking of stakeholders, you know, you'd mentioned stakeholders and obviously cultures are made out of stakeholders. They're made out of people. In terms of stakeholder engagement, clearly that's a key to success. So I want to ask you a couple of questions based on that idea. And my first question is, how important is stakeholder engagement in communication in driving successful change? Exactly. You know, you just talked about the idea of localization and kind of speaking their language. And there's a lot there. But can you maybe drill down just a little bit further? And how important is that idea to success or failure? Well, it's absolutely important. But let's dissect the, the terms a little bit. So the the stakeholders... Another term for stakeholders is subculture. So mm -hmm. we subcultures aren't simply on the org chart. So it's not as simple as, oh, HR versus IT. Yeah. You've got all kinds of informal so subcultures that aren't even on the org chart. So everybody who's been here more than 10 years may well constitute a subculture. Yeah. They relate to each other differently than all the newbies that we just hired. Just like everything else in life. Just like everything else. So yeah. you've you got to identify the real subcultures. Those are your stakeholders. Yeah. And that may be, you know, over here, it might be one or two people. Over here, it might be several thousand. And by the way, you've got subcultures outside the organization. So your board may well be a key subculture. Mm -hmm. Your customers, there's all kinds of subcultures that have to be taken into account. Now, the second term, engagement. There's a wide berth here. As I mentioned earlier, some organizations interpret engagement as essentially democracy. We're, we're going to vote our way through this and we're going to have nothing but happy campers uh, because we're not going to do anything you know, faster than you want to vote for. I don't have a majority about that as an approach as long as you don't try transformational change with that approach. Because at some point, there's going to be some unhappy campers about transformational change. And so we're back. Where does engagement work? Well, it works when there is a lot of not just acceptance. I, I can't just say, Jack, it's OK if you're honest with me about your input. I've got to convince you that it's your obligation to come forward. And if your honesty includes that my baby's ugly, then we need to hear that <laughs> because we've got to get to the right solution. Engagement is this bringing forward and genuinely deeply valuing and listening to that. I don't have to agree with what you're saying to deeply listen and value that you're bringing it forward. 
from all of that, we pull what we can tie together and that becomes then engagement has to be married to commitment that we are now going to all pursue the same course. Engagement without that commitment is, you're just asking for trouble. Uh, Asking people to be committed without their engagement isn't going to get get it to Mm -hmm. Mm them. Now, there's one more piece to this. Once you've engaged people and really valued what they had to say and you've made a tough decision and you're moving forward, that movement forward has got to be characterized by a combination of two things. We're going to communicate in ways that that people can relate to. It's going to be meaningful. And that means we got to tailor our message to different stakeholders. But we also have to bring forward consequences. Positive and negative consequences have to be applied to what it is we're communicating. If you have excellent communications and there's no consequences for if I do or don't support you, then you're not going to end up with reaching full realization. So, So stakeholders first, those are your subcultures. You deeply listen and value even when it's hard to hear. You incorporate everything you can. You make tough decisions. You expect full support and you and you provide consequences to those that do and don't engage in that support. Yeah. So I think you in part answered my second question, Daryl, and this idea of, you know, kind of you have these two opposite ends of the spectrum that we've been speaking about. In, in terms of leadership, right? So you got the ruler on one end and you got maybe the, I don't know, the, 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 the full democracy on the other end. And, and this idea of, you know, this question of how can leaders balance the need for strategic direction, right? So you got to balance this need, you know, so you can kind of have that, that effective strategic direction, but you got to balance that with the need to listen and to incorporate feedback from the stakeholders, as you were just describing. And you had mentioned that you do that through engagement. That's step number one is you get engagement of all your subcultures and then you value the feedback and then you communicate in meaningful ways. And then right when you when you said that, Daryl, my next question is, well, well, that's all fine and dandy. But what if at the end of the day you do all that and still they're not on the bus, right? Whether it's an individual or a group of individuals or a subculture, what if they're still not on the bus? So as a leader, again, you have engagement and it's effective. Let's assume it's effective. Let's assume you're getting great feedback. Let's assume that you're communicating in a meaning, meaningful way. But there's almost always, I mean, isn't there, Daryl, uh, a question, you get some sort of resistance, right? Not everybody's going to get on the bus. And then that's where you said, well, at some point, there's got to be consequences. And, and the consequences that go in both directions. There are positive consequences as well for yeah. those that, that do get on the bus. Yeah. But yes, um, I, I had a Zoom call this morning with CEO and a few of his direct reports. And they're months now into dealing with some some pretty strong headwinds, mm. um, and they've they've made the case for change, uh, pushback from uh, some key stakeholders in the organization, and they've they've I think done an excellent job of genuinely listening and, and by the way incorporating m- much of of the feedback that they got, but they're at a point now where after several months of that, that today's meeting was about, we're going to have to simply cut our losses with some of these folks. Uh, that's not the first thing that they did. It actually is the last thing they did, but they were willing to do that. Now, there, are other, there were other consequences. It, you know, Consequences are not as simple as you either have a job or you get fired. Yeah. But I, I, I just wanted to raise it that this group this morning after I think some some real patience and some empathy with those that were struggling have come to the point that 
this train is about to leave the station. We need to know who's going to be actually yeah. having a seat. Yeah. And isn't that part of the art of leadership as well? Because there, there's always, I think it's it's very fair and honest to say, resistance to change, especially in the scale that you work within, Daryl. And at some point, you know, I think resistance to change is, change is a very powerful tool for successful change. Yes. And, um, yeah. you know, and you listen to that and you really just make sure, hey, am I doing my job as a leader? Am I listening to the right things? Do I understand the issues? Am I missing something? But at some point, you know, at some point, you're not going to make progress unless you make progress, which means you got to you got to get on the bus and, and drive the bus at some point. And often, even at that point, there's still people that don't want to get on the bus. Well, I'll tell you what is uh, what's kind of surprising sometimes, Jack, is when there's been leadership declaration about how critical this change is. But when you when you get to the end of the day, confronting Sally or George about their dragging their feet, the unwillingness to do that sometimes is quite remarkable. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, Sally Sally is connected to somebody on the board and and George, you know, brings in a lot of revenue. We can't make him unhappy. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why leaders don't draw that line and inevitably they end up far short of the full yeah. realization that they that they say that they're after. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that there are certainly politics within every organization, but I believe there's good and bad politics, right? At the end of the day, politics is, can be a good thing as long as it's, uh, yeah. it's productive and, and uh, healthy politics. But you're right. Talk about, again, the, the fabric of really understanding the fabric of the organization to create change. Those are the sorts of things that you need to be mindful of because they, they do. They, they matter. It's, it's real. Well, I'd like to reinforce uh, something that you said just a couple of minutes ago, and that is, um, I'm not sure you're wording, but resistance, if managed correctly, resistance is an ally. It is not something that, number one, it's inevitable. So so don't think you're going to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, you can prevent unnecessary resistance, but you're going to, human beings are going to push back when their expectations are disrupted. But when you see it as a strategic leverage point and how it can actually be channeled into energy toward you, even though initially it's coming against you, that's a key differentiation, again, between the leaders that succeed and don't. Because uh, you have a lot of leaders that resistance means that uh, some, you know, we must be failing or people are pushing back or the people pushing back or they're not real. They don't really believe in what we're doing. When in fact, much of the time, they simply have questions and concerns that haven't been addressed. So if you view resistance as A, inevitable, therefore let's deal with it. And B, if it's inevitable, we want it to be overtly expressed, not covertly expressed. Covert resistance is the worst thing possible. Let's get it out on the table. Let's help people understand that that's not a negative. It may not be always easy to hear, but it's not a negative. In fact, this is a major change and you don't have some concerns. You don't understand what we're doing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, Daryl, I, I really appreciate your time. And if you don't mind, I, I want to try to get in uh, three or four more questions. Um, sure. But I want to switch gears just a little bit, maybe drill a little bit more into the idea of strategy and tactics for successful change. And I know that in your work and your articles and in your books, you, you talk about the idea of the importance of defining outcomes 
and developing a clear plan to achieve them. And you briefly alluded to that, I think, in your response to the first question. But how can this approach benefit organizations undergoing transformational change? So maybe ask a different way. What can you share in general about strategy and then tactics for successful change execution, right? Because strategy is one thing, but then the tactics to make that strategy successful are entirely a different thing. Oh, well, we've kind of in various ways, I guess we've touched on a lot of the tactics. Um, Once you're confident that you've developed a strategy that is sound, then it's all about orchestrating the, the human landscape to get it accepted. So first, let's be very, very clear among ourselves as the leaders, the authors of this strategy. L- let's be clear about what is our intent and make sure that we own it. I worked with a group a few months ago, Jack, that the problem was not down in the ranks. The ranks actually were more prepared to move forward with this, this strategy. You had key players at the executive team level that were either dragging their feet or in, in one case, overtly <laughs> saying, you know, this is this isn't the direction we should go. Well, you can't go down and enroll people if you haven't done that homework. So get very clear and concise about the, the intent. Make sure that the senior team is in a position of enrolling others and every level has to then enroll the followers. And then take a look at Again, at the subculture level, at the subculture level, where are the inhibitors and how do we mitigate those? How do we close those gaps? So you end up, the tactics here is you end up with a roadmap. You've identified where you're going. You've gotten clear about the inhibitors and getting there. And you've got a roadmap by subculture of what needs to be done to end up at, at, at the mountaintop. You're starting in Chicago. I'm starting in, in L.A., but we're trying to get to the same intent. We should not be dealing with some cookie cutter that somehow homogenizes everything. You've got your own risk and I've got mine, and we've got to deal with those at a local level so that we all get together. So yep. these are the tactics that come to play when we found what the leaders that were actually succeeding, they were engaged in activity like I was just describing. Those that were falling short, inevitably, they would first declare how important this change was, and then they would explain how they didn't have the time or sometimes the the people to do what I just described, and, and yet they would proceed on anyway. So the strategy, without the capability to apply the tactics to reach full realization, you're going to end up with good ideas, but you're not going to end up with, with substantive movement. Yeah. Good stuff. You know, Daryl, um, this next question may, may be putting you on a spot just a little bit, but if our listeners, you know, listening to this conversation today and, and truly some great insight, but how does Connor Partners approach change execution and how does it differ from other firms? You know, obviously you have had great experience and Connor Partners has been quite successful. What's your differentiator, would you say, in terms of effective change execution? Um, well, there's a... <laughs> I had, I had an advantage, Jack, for several years because when I started all this in 1974, there wasn't anybody else doing change work. So I, I sort of had it to myself for a while. Uh, now, there's a lot of individual practitioners and, and firms are in this work and they are doing good work. So the field is much more mature than it was. 
And so, you know, I think we've got great tools and techniques, but I, I don't think that that's the differentiator. I think what pulls us out a little bit is, number one, we, we only accept assignments that meet those three criteria. So I'm not involved in incremental change, only projects that are paradigm leaps, if you will, transformational in nature, uh, nothing short of realization is going to be acceptable to the board. And by the way, it means we end up working with, with a lot of the boards and we're going to measure this on realization metrics, but there's a lot at stake with these changes. And so there's no question that we have to reach realization. Well, if you build your practice just around that kind of urgency, it's different. I mean, I mean, think of me as I, I'm not a physician. I, I'm a, a heart specialist. I, and I only, <laughs> I only work with the patients with the more complex issues. So that that kind of separates out the work. And then within that, although we end up helping the leaders at the top cascade down what needs to be taken down, the work itself that I'm involved in is with the CEO, the executive team around him or her and the board. That three-tier upper echelon is where I focus. And, you know, a lot of folks w- would focus later. I, I, we're not a training company. There's a lot of education in yeah, our work, right. but we're not a training yeah. company. We're, we're intervening with those that top level. And I think the last thing is just philosophically, it's very important to me to leave capability. Uh, I don't think an organization should be on an ongoing basis dependent on outside consulting for this. I think these are capabilities that they can acquire themselves. And so leaving leaders with how to do this on their own is just, to me, that's important. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that. All right, Daryl. And thank you again. What a fun conversation. This is fantastic. I'd like to ask you two more questions. The first one is, We've talked a lot about leadership and its relevance to culture and then culture's relevance to successful change, but how can organizations measure? And then, you know, you're obviously you're, you're big into uh, metrics, but how can organizations measure their culture and track progress towards the desired outcomes? What, what does that look like? Um, you actually can create dashboards around progress once you define the culture that you want, and you've identified through your diagnosis what the inhibitors are at the local subculture level, then you can track, uh, and each of those subcultures created uh, mitigation strategies. So we can track, we've got realization and installation indicators of closing gaps. So you literally can measure progress by measuring to what degree are we moving toward these realization metrics that we set up. My preference is that's not just a dashboard for the ELT, but the board, you know, has a role in in asking how are we doing on that. So you can you can make it you know tangible. Now, but when I describe it that way, I, I, I don't want to imply that human behavior can ever become you know so rigorous that it's it's paid by numbers. This is still yeah. You do. You deal with any kind of a cultural issue, and you're dealing with a very subjective set of circumstances. Yeah. But nonetheless, we can be objective about that subjectivity by creating metrics and dashboards. And uh, so, I, I don't want to suggest that it's all science. I think there's an awful lot of of art here. But one of my concerns is that a, a lot of the culture work, to me, is is softer than it needs to be. Yeah. So there, there absolutely are ways that you can help boards and executives really determine, are we making progress or not? Good stuff. Well, lastly, can you leave us with a golden nugget? What are the key takeaways you want our listeners to remember from our conversation? What's that little nugget that you can leave to conclude our our chat today? 
I, I would, I'm not sure this is a summary, Jack, but my hope is that that listeners could understand that this is incredibly difficult um, domain to work in, and it really should not be pursued just on a whim. It's not a peripheral thing. You toss it HR. It, it only is going to succeed if it's central, if culture is central to a, a critical change that is central to the organization. Culture has to have a justification if you're really going to put time and energy in it. So first ask not anything about the culture. First ask, is the change imperative that we're going for, is culture imperative that change? And if, and if that is so, if the answer is yes, then there are patterns that we can replicate. They're just not, they're not easy, simple, quick, but, but there are patterns that we could um, employ. And so the, the message is, you know, just be sober about all this. Just be serious about it if, if you decide to go into it. But there, there are patterns that you can follow. Great advice. Listeners, thank you for joining us today as we explored the dimensions of change execution and the impact of organizational change and leadership on successful transformational change with Daryl Connor. So we've learned about the importance of aligning strategy with culture and leadership. We've discussed using effective tactics and tools and measuring organizational culture to track progress toward desired incomes. And now it's time to take action and apply what we've learned today to, to drive successful change in our organizations. Remember, it's not just about listening and learning. It's about taking action and moving the needle forward. Daryl, thank you so much for your time today. What a fun conversation. Lastly, can you share maybe any resources or tools that the listeners can use to learn more about Effective Change or yourself yeah. or Connor Partners, please? Uh, yeah. there, there are several, several papers that we've published on our website uh, about culture and about other aspects of change at uh, www.connorpartners.com. Yeah, yeah, folks can go there and uh, kind of poke around and see if there's something that's relevant for them. Sounds good. Well, thank you. And of course, listeners, we will have all of the information on Daryl and his team uh, in the show notes as well. Daryl, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, be well, and we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to, and we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the Podcast option. 
please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.